Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Uh, one of the fun curveballs for me this weekend was about 2 a.m. last night. I uh, got up to turn on the air conditioning. We tried to do the windows down thing, but our house just wouldn't cool down. So at 2 a.m. I got up to turn on the air conditioning, and when I did that, I laid back down, and as soon as I moved my head, I felt the room spin, and I know what that means in my life, because uh, I've had vertigo kind of a couple times, and so I'm like, oh. All right, I started running all sorts of contingencies for what this morning may look like, but my contingency now is just that I'm going to be seated. And so this makes church really interesting, right? Because if the pastor falls off of his stool, um, tithes are free this weekend, um, (laughs) right? Uh, It makes it much more interesting just to watch and see what's going to happen here. And I'm also coming off of a Dramamine edge. So my words might slur a little more, <laughs> um, but I'm, we're here together, and it's good, and I think God has a word for us, and so by God's grace, we'll just jump into it. Um, I do want to let you know that next weekend, um, there's something really kind of good and critical for us as a church. We're going to start a, a, a series called Let's Go, and I think this is probably one of the most critical conversations that we've had as a church since we've started four and a half years ago. And so um, I want to ask you to make your presence a priority as we talk about our future direction as a church and our plan to actualize our mission to make the gospel clear and accessible here in this community, uh, both for our neighbor's sake and for our children's sake and those who would come after us. So this is really going to be a defining time. Would you please make your presence a priority? We're going to have kind of a conversation over four weeks. It's a really big deal. And and even to kind of start out the conversation, um, next Sunday we're going to start that. But then next Sunday night, I'm inviting anyone sixth grade and up to my house for a bonfire and a prayer time. Now, if you have kids under that age and you want to come, we'll take care of child care. We just need to know that you're coming. So there's a way to register on the church app or on the email that gets bopped around. So uh, please be a part of that. That would be amazing. Well, this week we're wrapping up our series in cancel culture. Cancel culture, this dynamic within our culture where if somebody does something morally objectionable or offensive, um, you know, we would look at that individual and we would kind of cut them off. We would withdraw from relationship. We would boycott them, uh, either an individual or an objection or an organization. And I think fundamental in the, in the core of this conversation is how do we deal with someone else's sin that we're in relationship with? Because when someone sins against us, when someone badmouths us, when someone does something against us, like there is a very strong fleshly reaction to kind of say, you're dead to me. And so how do we deal with that? So we've been, been looking at kind of four different layers of relationship. Uh, the first layer is when, when we sin, how does God view us? So this relationship between God and us, God and you. And what we said is that what's so amazing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that when God had every right to cancel us, cancel me for my arrogance and my rebellion, he didn't come to cancel me. He came to cancel sin. That's what Jesus did. And we would look at that and we would say that same dynamic of working to cancel sin rather than cancel the person, that that's actually incumbent and expected upon someone who would call themselves a Christ follower. 
So that, that really does set a rudder for us then as we think about a couple other aspects of relationship. The second layer that we talked about was you with another Christian. Someone who would say, I am a Christ follower. I want my life to be guided and directed by Jesus. And what Jesus does is he actually gives us a road map. He gives us a road map to get back to rather than getting back at someone. And that's such a critical distinction. He says things like this. Like when someone does something to you, you know, they sin against you, first step is you would go one-on-one and you'd have a conversation. And if they've kind of turned around and, and repented of that, you've won them over. That's awesome. If they don't, they talk about taking another person, maybe a group of people. And then Jesus says, ultimately, if that person doesn't repent, if they don't turn around, he says that the last and kind of necessary step is to remove them from your life, to remove them from fellowship. When someone is intentionally harming, wronging, when someone won't turn around, that not the first step and not the second step, not even the third step, but the last and necessary step is to say, hey, I, I, we, we can't be in fellowship with you. We can't be in fellowship with you. It's a, it's a big deal. Last week then we looked at a, kind of a third area which would be our relationship with ourselves because sometimes, isn't that the hardest? Like when you've made a mistake to forgive yourself and to move on from that. And so we looked at David because David's sin really impacted him. It impacted his community in a huge, huge way. Well, he wrote beautifully much of the Psalms, including Psalm 51. David showed us three things. The first is that when David sinned, he owned his odor. He acknowledged his sin before God. I sinned, bef- I sinned before you, God, and no one else. So he acknowledges it, and then he accepts the consequences. God, you are justified when you speak. You are right when you judge. And then, ultimately, he aligned his heart back with God. And, and that is so helpful helpful because each and every one of us are going to be in that place where we we have to own it we have to accept it and we have to realign I just think it's really really helpful this week what I want to talk about is a fourth avenue of relationships so we talked about us with God us with other Christians us with our relationship with ourselves. this this last layer would be us with non non-christians us with the world when we talk about um uh, you know, this, 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 is, this, is someone, this is someone who maybe they've foolishly sinned against you. They've arrogantly gossiped about you. They've said something that's not true about you. Um, wh- how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that when your neighbor keeps driving their lawnmower in your lo- yard or keeps stealing your parking spot in your neighborhood? How do you respond to that? You know, I've been in church a really long time. And what I've noticed is that Christians are some of the worst at dealing with these kinds of relationships. They just are. They just are. I think we get it really wrong. And here's why. Because we're tempted to wage war the same way that the world would wage war against us or against one another. And we take our cues from how the culture operates. them. They canceled prayer in school. They canceled touch by an angel and replaced it with desperate housewives or bachelor, right? So we're going to cancel them back. And so we embrace and engage the culture with the same tactics that they operate with. And, and I, I wonder if it's because we just feel powerless. 
We feel powerless in the face of like major cultural shifts and changes that have occurred in the last 75 years. And so we think, what else are we going to do to facilitate change and to influence our community if we don't? And then fill in the blank. About every two weeks I go to the chiropractor and there's one of the other patients there. He's always scheduled for the same time that I am. And uh, his name is James and, and he's an older gentleman that I, I know is a Christ follower. I've sat down with him and I've heard his story. I've seen the fruit of the Spirit in him. Um, and, and I'll say, hey, how, how are you today? And he'll just kind of shake his head and say, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket and I can't believe this or that leader. And if the church just doesn't rise up and do something about this, then we're never going to, you know, and it just kind of starts filling in the blank with this reaction against the world. And I think the intentions are good because we would say, hey, there's a way of behaving that's not in alignment with, with what God's kingdom would have it be. But I think sometimes our motives are not always that pure because truthfully like I I guess I can't speak for everyone but when I have those feelings like I want to control what someone else does I want to influence that I want to kind of coerce what's happening to get what I want now my question is this like does that actually work does it actually bring about any kind of heart level change I think you'd all agree that no one, and we said this in the last couple weeks, no one really likes an agenda that's placed on them. I don't like it. Matter of fact, one of the things that makes me really grouchy is when I go to watch a movie. It seems like all the movies coming out of Hollywood always have some sort of secondary agenda to it. There's always something that they're trying to push over. And I, I, I resent that when they push an agenda on me. As a matter of fact, when I find a movie that doesn't have that, I'm like, yes, no agenda, right? We don't like it when someone has that agenda on us. And I just don't think it's all that effective when we place it on someone else. But I think there's an even more important question, and it's this. Is that the way of Christ? Is that how Jesus interacted with his culture? Is that the way of then Christ's followers? Because if we're saying we're following after Jesus of Nazareth, just as he came into an environment, so would we want to come into an environment. Just so he is Christ, we want to be little Christ's. And we're taking our cues after him. And how did Jesus bring about heart level change? You know, when God wanted to bring about heart level change with us, you know what he didn't do? He didn't come in with a fresh set of laws. He didn't. There are was already 600 of those and all that it did according to the book of Romans is it stoked up more rebellion in our hearts. It didn't accomplish anything. Instead, this is what Jesus did. He came as the representative of God to incarnate himself into the life of other people so that he could model what selfless service and, uh, and humility actually looks like. Why do we think that it would be any different for us who are little Christs compared to what Jesus did. So what I want to do is I just want to look at a passage that I think really, really encapsulates this because I, I know that when I start thinking about these things, I start having my own internal objections. I do. I, I think, yeah, uh, well, you know, they didn't live in a time that had 
and then fill in the blank for some sort of moral depravity or influence happening or something that we would look at and say, hey, we're in a special class and a special situation compared to what someone else was at. But I think what we're going to see is as we open this passage, it's not that case. In fact, what I want you to do is turn to 1 Peter 2 and this orange Bible is underneath your seats. It's 828. And if you don't have a Bible, you can keep that. It's our gift to you. And as you're turning there, I want to set it up a little bit. Page 828, 1 Peter chapter 2. This is um, Peter, hot-headed Peter, uh, this Jewish fisherman from a rural area called Galilee. Jesus gets a hold of his life. He goes on mission for Christ. Peter um, Peter's writing to a group of people in modern-day Turkey. And in 1 Peter, it starts out and he says, to all of these Gentile Christians that are scattered about. Peter finds out that they're suffering persecution from their Greek and their Roman neighbors. And so he writes to them in the middle of their suffering. So I can often approach scripture and I can think, well, yeah, but they were, you know, they're in a different situation than we are. We're a moral minority. They were a very much a moral minority. Just like they were on the margins of their culture, so is the church in the margins of our culture. Now, it's not always been that way, but probably around the 40s and the 50s, maybe some sociologists say it shifted earlier, but the, like society went from the mode that the sociologists called Christendom, where you could walk down the street and expect that anyone you found, where'd you go to church this last weekend? And they would tell you. They would have basically a Judeo-Christian worldview. That was the case for a long time, and we've just kind of kept assuming that's the way that people are. But it's not that way anymore. We're on the margins the same way that these early Christians were. And this is what Peter says to them. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 is where we're going to start. We'll end in verse 17. Peter looks to these Gentiles living in Turkey and he says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. This is really fascinating, the language that Peter is using, because he is using language from the Old Testament that typically would have been used to speak about the nation of Israel. Those were God's chosen people, weren't they? God said, of all of the people on the earth, Israel, I am choosing you, not because you have your stuff together, but because through your brokenness, I'm going to manifest my glory to the nations and you're going to represent my heart and my mind and and the way you govern yourself the way you deal with refugees the way you deal with the oppressed that's going to reflect my heart and my mind and you're going to present that you're going to be my representatives on the earth amongst all the people but that was only ever the nation of Israel. But in Christ, he starts fulfilling this, this promise that was given to Abraham long, long ago where he said, through you all the nations would be blessed. Christ shows up. The commission to share the gospel goes to the Gentiles. It blows Peter's mind as well. God had to get a hold of his heart in the middle of all of that mess. And now he's writing to these Gentiles and he's saying, you have something that's critically true about your identity. 
Your identity is that you are set aside to be my representatives, to reflect the heart and the mind of God in an environment where you are marginalized, in an environment where you are persecuted, where you are harassed, where you are taken advantage of. This is who your identity is. He says, all of that's true so that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. Like, I think when the world looks at who is in the church, you're like, seriously? Don't you, don't you know that that's a hot, that person's a hot mess? It's like, yeah, it's amazing. And God loved me. And he called me his own and he adopted me. Like, that's unbelievable. Like, we're this billboard of, a, of God's grace to the community around us. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You used to be an enemy of God, and now he calls you his own, and he's given you a new identity. So listen, you were separated from God, but now you're brought near to him so that you would represent me to the world. So he says, don't wage war the, world, the way that the world wages war. Don't do the same things that you used to do because you're something new and you're something different. That's why he says this. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, and some translations even use the word aliens, to abstain from sinful desires which, way, which wage war against your soul. That's the Dramamine talking. So he, Peter, Peter's drawing this comparison. He's saying the same way that Israel went into Canaan, this place where there were these foreign gods and the Baal and the Baal worship and the sacrifices that all took place. The same way that when they entered into the promised land and they were foreigners in a, in a, in a Ain't a, we a weird culture is just alien to them. That's the same way that you're my representative in a culture that's alien to you. So he says that, that, that you need to be something different because you're a foreigner. And you know what a foreigner is? It's not an 80s love rock band, like ballad band. That's not what it is. It's, it's someone who is in a culture that doesn't fit. And it doesn't make sense to them because they have a different set of values. My family is watching a sitcom about an alien that lands in Colorado and he's trying to understand their culture and he just doesn't understand why they do the things the way they do. And so it's this look of someone who is an alien in that culture. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt like what it feels like to be out of place? I have. I think maybe I told the story before, but one time I was working with this video production company out of Frederick, and one of the commercials we made made it into like the best of Frederick. So they're like, hey, come to this um, gala or something, and it's fancy, and people wear black suits and, and fancy dresses, and, and there's cocktail waitresses and drinks being served all over the place. And I, I went thinking, all right, I have not had an experience before like this, but I, I felt so out of place. I felt like an Amish kid with a nose ring. I mean, I just didn't fit in that environment. And I like left, I came home early. I'm like, this feels foreign to me. These values are not my values. Jesus, Jesus Peter, Paul, they would say this. They would say, hey, you're in another culture and the cultures of the world shouldn't match the values that you have. In fact, 
Paul in Romans 12 says, don't be conformed any longer to those patterns. You have a different template. You have a different pattern. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't do the things your whole culture does. Which interestingly, that's what brought down the nation of Israel. They went into Canaan and they said, hey, we, we want kings. Hey, we want more gods. And so they would worship Baal. You know what that meant? It meant that when things didn't go right, that they would sacrifice their children to these pagan gods. And they adulterated their heart with a God that was not their own. And it brought them down. So, so does Peter say, listen, you're a foreigner. You're an alien. Don't follow those patterns. Don't follow those patterns because we have a different kind of, of king. Because you have a different home, you have a different set of rules. It would be a really odd thing to expect someone from America to follow the rules of a foreign nation. Wouldn't it? Like, like Singapore, for instance. You're not allowed to chew gum in Singapore. But that's not, our, that's not our rules, is it? Did you know, for instance, that in France it's illegal to wear loose-fitting swimwear in public swimming places? So could you imagine... Could you imagine that in a couple weeks when my family goes to Ocean City, someone comes up to me and I'm in my board shorts and I'm hanging out and someone says, hey, you know, Scott, you need to wear a Speedo because it's French law. <laughs> I'd probably look at them and say, that's, that's not our law. You're ridiculous. I'm not bound by those rules. Plus, it would be a crime against humanity for me to wear a Speedo. And now you're thinking, oh, great. I regret coming to church and you're trying to purge that mental image of your pastor wearing a Speedo. You're welcome. <laughs> right, the same way that that would be weird for us to follow someone else's laws, why would we follow, follow the ways of the culture around us? And the world, listen, does not follow our king either. Why do we expect them to follow a king that they've never pledged allegiance to? We do that all the time, don't we? You need to be bound by our book. Look, they have no other way of operating. The book of Romans says they're slaves to sin. Why would we expect them to do things like that? It's a huge disconnect. That's why Paul, that's why Paul would say things like, hey, judge those people inside the church because that's your law set. Don't judge those outside of the church. That's for God to deal with. God's going to deal with all that stuff. We don't hold them to the same standard. Instead, this is what Peter tells us to do. This is fascinating. He says, live such good lives among the pagans. These are godless people. These are people who have acted horribly towards you. Live good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they would see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. When, when someone attacks you, when you feel like you've been falsely accused, it can be really tempting to borrow the tactics from the world. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to gossip back about that neighbor. I'm going to throw spears back at them. I'm going to try to shut down their reputation. I'm going to badmouth that HOA neighbor who complained about my truck being in the driveway for two days even though it's perfectly functioning. Right? We're, we're not going to retaliate the same kind of way. Peter says when the culture is at odds with you, you don't retaliate, you radiate. Let them see your good deeds. Let that be the thing. And then he says this. He says, 
Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. I'm about to step on some toes, but there is the S word in church. Submit yourselves. Did you know that one, that one little word has caused more offense in my conversations in the church than any other word? It has. Inside, we're thinking, no, I am my own self. I'm, it's about me and my sovereignty, and I'm not going to submit to, and I'm not going to submit to. But over and over again in Scripture, do you know what the New Testament tells us? And again, these are the laws of the church. This isn't the law of the world. This is the law of who we are in Christ. It says things like this. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It says, wives, submit to your husband. Submit to your leaders. It says, just as the church submits to Christ, so do you submit to one another. That's the expectation. And listen, beloved, I want to tell you that if that's hard for your heart, that's a commentary on you, not on God's word. It's a commentary on you of a proud heart that's joining the culture of the word. And we don't like to submit because it means someone else is in charge of us. We don't like setting, uh, letting go of control. But let's not forget this one important truth. That when Christ came to earth, he was submitting fully to God the Father. And he put on a, blank, he put on a towel around his waist and he got down and he served. And he submitted himself to his disciples. He adapted to our speed for our sake. Did that make him weak? No. You got it. You got it. It actually made him strong. It's not weak to submit. It's actually the greatest sign of strength. And it's the nature of what we signed up for. And Peter says this. He says, submit to every human authority. Not just the ones that we want to. Every human authority. But what does he mean? Like who? Glad you asked. Whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Now I want you to think about where Peter is when he's writing this because you think, oh, that's just easy for you, Peter. You've never had to deal with fill in the blanks. Peter was writing from Rome under the rulership of Nero and Diocletian. These were evil, evil, and Peter was most likely in jail, by the way, at the time. And Christians, at that time, the persecution of them was just starting to ramp up. These were peaceful people who didn't do anything wrong. In fact, uh, you know, anytime there would be something that would happen, they would blame it on the Christians. There was a fire, and they blamed it on the Christians. You want to know why? Because the Christians weren't willing to, to, to offer up sacrifices to foreign gods. And they understood that if your, if your harvest fails, it's because we've offended the gods. Why did we offend the gods? Well, because we got all these Christians and they didn't sacrifice to them. And so they would take the Christians and the, the, the well-to-do ones. You know what they would do to them? They would behead them. And the not well-to-do ones, you know what they did with them? They would take them into the Colosseum, men, women, and children. And they would feed them to the wild leopards and lions and bears and they would put the children on the outside of those circles where they all so that they would be taken first because the lions would get full and they wouldn't kill the last ones first they would just play with them 
So it's tempting to think, you know, they don't have our president. They don't have my husband. <laughs> they had a lot worse. Nothing like what we experienced. These were people that were asked to compromise their convictions and their religious beliefs on a daily basis and they never gave in to those, those demands to bow a knee to false gods. In fact, they never even created a problem for their leaders. The leaders would say, hey, we've, man, there's this outbreak and they would say, wow, you need someone to go in and care for the sick? We'll do that. With or without a mask, we'll go in, we'll take care of them. There's, there's, there's kids who don't have parents, we'll adopt them. There's poor, we'll, we'll take care of them. There's outcasts, they're, they're welcome with us. They never gave them room to slander. Peter says, don't retaliate. Don't wage war. And this is so counterintuitive. He says, submit to. Gosh. He says, submit to. And Peter tells us why. Okay, this is, oh, guys, this is not my words. You can argue with me in your head all you want. This is not me that's saying it. This is what he says. For it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the talk of foolish people. And when we're at war with someone and we want to cancel them, you know what I think in my heart? They're fools. They're ignorant. They're idiots. Like we used, I can't believe that idiot just drove that way. I can't, who would vote that way? They're idiots. Don't we think that way? This is what he says. For it's God's will that by doing good, you have a way of silencing them and it's not canceling them. It's by doing good to them. And listen, you say, I want to know what God's will is. What's God's will in my life? I just got to know what you, we don't have to guess. You know, we don't have to listen for a shiver in our quiver. We don't have to discern it. It's right here. This is what God wants for us. Do good to them. And that, the, our only option is not to cancel them. The way that we respond, the way that we silence them is by doing good to them. When I was in college, my roommate John uh, was not a, um, he wasn't like a star athlete, but he really enjoyed the local sports teams. <laughs> he enjoyed Grace College basketball, which in Indiana was a huge deal because basketball is humongous there. So he was like the informal leader of the student body cheering section. Not the cheerleaders. They did their thing, but this, they called themselves the Grace Crazies. They had a mascot and everything, and John would lead them, and they were just nuts about it. it was great. But whenever it got tense on the court, whenever there was collision starting to happen, and it got quiet or whatever, John would yell out, kill him with kindness. Because we're Christians. It was a Christian school. Don't retaliate. Kill him with kindness. Romans 12 says this, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Listen, when we feel like there's evil bearing down on us, when we feel oppressed, when we feel like this isn't fair, when we feel like this person's a fool, how could we possibly pray for this kind of president? You don't understand our mayor. Look at what, what they're doing. Our response is not to retaliate with more evil. It's to overcome that evil with good. Because here's the truth. If we're going to be little Christs, anyone can get up and say, I'm a Christian. Anyone can say that. 
But not everyone, not, uh, anyone can act like a Christian, but not everyone can react like one. Do you know what was the defining moments for Jesus? It was not necessarily when he got up and talked. It was when his enemies came for him and when he turned a cheek. It was when he had every opportunity to strike down these people with the throne, like the angels in heaven, and he didn't. And he took it and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And if we're going to be little Christs, it means that we learn to react like Christians and not just act like Christians. So let me ask you, church, when you're like this, with your spouse, on social media, with your sister-in-law, do you just act like a Christian? Or do you react like one? Are you looking for ways to get back at them, to tighten the screws on them? Or do you forgive? Do you react like Christ did? Peter says this, he says, live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. And listen, in North America, we love ourselves, our liberty, and our freedom. I do too. It means a lot to us. And it's a good thing. And we can, we can stand for that. That's great. But Peter says this, you are free. Don't use your freedom and I, you know, I'm going to act with my own self-interest to cover up your own selfishness or your own ambitions. Instead, you're supposed to submit yourself to the lordship of Christ. That's what a Christian looks like. And Romans talks about that. You used to be a slave to sin. Now you're a slave to Christ. And so these things that I have, these tools that I have, these resources that I have, this gift set that I have, I don't use it for myself. I'm going to use it for somebody else. That's the essence of what it means to be a Christian. And the way you silence the talk of foolish, ignorant people is not by retaliating, but by radiating. It's not just acting like a Christian, it's reacting like a Christian. Besides, Christ was the most free he had absolute freedom to do whatever he wanted. And he never used his own authority for his own good, but he used it for the interest of others. And then Peter finishes up this way, just to be kind of round third base. He says, show proper respect for everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Show proper respect to everyone in your social media posts, in your interactions at work, with that HOA person, with your spouse, your husband, your wife that you're just not seeing eye to eye with, with your kids. Are you showing proper respect to everyone? Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. How you act impacts how people understand Jesus to be. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, we now need to not just act like one, we need to react like one. Because when we cancel people, when we scream bloody murder, when we're hyperactive, hyperactive watchdogs and pit bulls, people are watching that. And Peter says, especially, not, not, not maybe when you're being mistreated, but especially when you're being mistreated, let your excellent behavior, not your noisiness, not your protests, be the thing that brings glory to God. And then when people look at you and they see someone who's honoring God even when it's hard, when they see someone who leads a, a quiet life full of peacefulness, 
He says that's actually glorifying God when we do that. Yeah, but I'm not going to get things my way. Come on, that's for God to deal with. Yeah, but they'll never see things the right. That's for God to deal with. We're just supposed to honor others, show proper respect. Could you imagine how different, can you imagine how different our interactions, how different the church would be? Like many times I'm ashamed of how the church reacts to some of these public square things that happen. Because we just pick up the same tools that the world has. We just clamor about, we're just a noisy gong. Instead we've been called to something much greater. And bring glory to God. And so I, I want maybe just to think about a couple questions here that you discussed with your life group or even maybe on the way home. A couple questions to ponder. First, in your conflict with someone else, do you have the right expectation for that other person? In other words, am I expecting them to behave like a believer when they've never pledged allegiance to that? I think sometimes I can get rather guilty of doing that. Why would they act any other way? They don't know any better. They don't know any better. Are we expecting someone else from a foreign country to follow our rules, as it were? Second question. Am I using my freedom as a cover-up for my own selfishness, bigotry, or hatred? I have the right to speak my mind. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. But are you using that as a way to just cover up your need to control, coerce, ensure an outcome? Would you, would you be willing, this is a tough question, would you be willing to wait an hour before you respond to that text or that social media post or you post that link? Would you be willing to wait an hour just to let it simmer and cool in your own heart so that you're sure you're not coming from a place of your own selfishness? Number three, is my social media post or text message, is that showing proper respect to other people? Is it showing proper respect? Even if I don't agree with them, am I honoring this person or this appointed authority? And then lastly, in your conflict with others, are you acting like a Christian or are you reacting like one? Because we are not powerless. We are not powerless against the ways of the world. The only thing that created lasting heart change in us was when God came into our lives, into our midst and modeled humble submission, modeled godliness. We are not powerless. We have the opportunity to do that with others and be little Christs. Let me pray and then we're gonna respond as, as normal here, kind of creating some space and some time uh, just to say God be glorified in our lives. Just recognizing here this weekend that uh, this is not lightweight or easy. Um, in many ways, you know, that this hammer of First Peter falls on me too because it's easy to act like a Christian. It's a lot harder to react like one. And when I feel wronged is when I most want to roar up in my flesh. But we have a different source. We have a different authority. We have a different power. We have the spirit of God in us that allows us to do better. Jesus, thank you uh, that you set the example and that your work on the cross actually enabled and empowered us to act like Christ in the first place. So thank you, Jesus, for that. God, there's, there's uh, tough situations. I don't want to be cavalier and somehow give the thought process that, hey, this is so easy. It's not. When you're being wronged, it's really, really hard. God, would your spirit empower each of us to lead the way with humble, gentle, 
humility uh, as we interact with the world around us and with, other, with each other, God. God, we love you. Would you just be glorified in what we do and the kind of church that we are? That when you look at us, you'd smile and say, these are people that are, that are trying to follow after my heart. We love you, God. We praise you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.